Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. More and more women in the U.S. are choosing either to not have children or to have them later in life. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. The national birth rate in the U.S. has mostly declined since 2014. But this isn't just a trend here. The global birth rate has been on the decline for decades. It's a phenomenon that many attribute to younger generations of today. But Chicago history professor Peggy O'Donnell Heffington says it isn't fair to blame millennials and Gen Z for that change. In her new book, Without Children, The Long History of Not Being a Mother, O'Donnell Heffington details the reasons why women choose not to have children and that those reasons aren't anything we haven't seen before. And she joins us now to dig into the history. Now, Peggy, as I mentioned, women are choosing not to have kids, and that's not a new thing. You make that clear throughout the book. How far back did you go in your research? So, I mean, as you say, one of one of the central things I wanted to get across in the book was that not having children is definitely not something that's new. It's never been a majority experience, of course, um, but it's also not been a rare experience. Um, so my book covers largely the last two centuries in the United States and in Western Europe, but I I went even further back in some of my research, and I think you know we can safely say that people have been not having children for about as long as they have been having children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so you start the book off with... Uh... A little spicy. It was it was talking about the divide that you feel exists, right, between women with children and women without children. What does that divide look like to you? Yeah, I, I started the book with that assumption that um, that the divide between mothers and non-mothers is real um, because it feels real. I think, um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in my own life, I've watched people make other reproductive decisions than my own. And, and you feel like your social roles are very different, like your identities are very different. Um, but if you look to the past and not even that far in the past um, in American history, this divide between mothers and women without children sort of disappears. Um, they would have played similar roles within communities. Um the family in, in early America and the American colonies was, was a lot more flexible. Mm-hmm. Um, one historian, um, Helena Wall, has pointed out that um, for them, community, the family and the community were sort of considered one and the same. People didn't lock their doors. They went in, in and out of each other's houses. They disciplined each other's kids. They raised each other's kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it was it was sort of revelatory to, to see that not that far back in history, there wasn't so much of a divide in terms of social role, in terms of identity, in terms of participation in caring for a community. But somehow that changed yeah. over time. What, who perpetuated that divide? So across the 19th century, um, motherhood in, in America is sort of increasingly held up as an ideal um, and as the sort of primary way that women were supposed to participate as American citizens, as members of their communities. Um, and conversely, the opposite becomes true as well, that women who are not having children are sort of cast as shirking that social role, not participating mm-hmm. as citizens, doing something that is sort of bad and deviant. Um, and this creates this sense that there are there are mothers who are doing something right and there are women without children who are doing something deviant or um, bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that we, we still have the vestiges of that today. It's sort of the difference that we feel um, can be traced back 
to those efforts. You write about how the idea that love or sexual attraction as requirements for heterosexual marriage and and baby making, that that's a fairly new concept too, right? How does that frame this current conversation about why women are or aren't having kids? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is the the sort of the rise of the nuclear family as as the the ideal way to construct a family, and and eventually in the nineteenth century it becomes um, seen as sort of the only natural way that families are ever created, um, and that is you know a biological mother and father and their children mm-hmm. as sort of an isolated unit. Um, like I was saying, in the American colonies, family was more flexible than that. Um, and so so as the family becomes a more isolated unit, then, you know, the relationship between the parents becomes sort of the primary adult relationship. But also it becomes much more important that a woman has children of her own because if she doesn't, there's less room to sort of participate in in raising the next generation. Yeah, before we start taking some calls, because I already see the phone lines <laughs> and calls are coming in, Peggy. Uh, we mentioned earlier birth rates are declining in the U.S., yeah. right? Now, I'm going to throw some numbers out here. As of 2020, women average about 1.6 births in their lifetime. Uh, this is a global issue, as I said before. So countries like South Korea, Singapore, Italy, Greece, even Spain, they now average 0.08 or 1.3 births in a, a woman's lifetime. So how are those countries responding to the decline? So um, there's there's been a variety of efforts around the world to, to encourage people to have more children. Um, in the United States, I think we could say that those efforts are limited to trying to limit access to contraception and abortion, making it harder to not have children. Mm -hmm. In other places, like in France, for example, they've spent a lot of money um, trying to support parents, um, you know, in-home nannies and and postpartum care and expanding um, uh, work leave, those kinds of things. So Mm -hmm. there there are efforts sort of on on both sides. Um, In the French case, Fertility is still declining, but it's declining much more slowly than in a place like the United States. I see. Well, let's jump to the phone lines. Jennifer is waiting in Forest Park. Hey, Jennifer. Welcome to Reset. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Sure. What are your thoughts? Very very excited about this topic because I'm now 58. And when I was 21, I became um, very aware that our planet was quite overpopulated and I just decided that I really wasn't into having children. It would, um, you know, I just, I was, the fellow I was dating wanted to get married and have children right away. And I just decided I couldn't really focus at that time. And throughout the years, you know, it's come up many times by friends and family. Oh, you're going to have children. You're going to get married. And I'm like, no, not really. Mm-hmm. And it was yeah. that, it it was sort of met with, you know, grimaces and, oh, well, you must not like children, and which is absolutely not the case. I love children. But, you know, I don't think my value as a woman has to depend on bearing children. And I'm, I think, a better aunt, a better person. I reached uh, the point in my life where um, I can donate my time to children's organizations and the Girl Scouts yeah. and, you know, yeah. have a far, farther reach than having 2.5 children or whatever. I I hear you, Jennifer. Thank you so much, first of all, for sharing your story. I've heard this before. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jennifer shares shares the opinion, I think, of a lot of women uh, who have either decided to not have children at all or, as I said earlier, have them later in in life. Maybe their perspective has changed. What what are your thoughts, Peggy, after hearing that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And thank you for your your story, Jennifer. Um, I think what, what your story points to is that 
the way we talk about not having children as a society tends to cast it as this really simple choice that you want children and you like them, so you have them. And if you don't like children, you don't have them. And and I think Jennifer's experience suggests that it's much more complicated than that. There are all of these other factors. How do you want to prioritize your time? What is it that you want to do with your life? How do you sort of feel about the environment or the future? Um, and and so, so all of these other factors play into reproductive decisions. And, sure. and I think as Jennifer points out, you can be someone who very much likes children and wants to be involved in their lives and not have children of your own for a whole variety of reasons. Absolutely. Now, uh, when we talked about that declining birth rate, I do want to mention the most recent major drop in birth rates, at least in this country. It started at the height of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. uh, but you write that it disproportionately impacted black and low income mothers who were choosing at the time uh, financial stability or, or job security over having kids. Right. Who instead, though, found the pandemic to be actually the most convenient time to give birth and why? Yeah, so I, this this statistic was was sort of fascinating that um, that there was a widely publicized baby bust in in 2020 and 2021. Um, birth rates dropped, um, and and you know we can attribute that that we were all living in a crisis, right? Um, but there's some indication that among well-off white women, fertility actually increased. And they're working from home. They they weren't traveling. Maybe had a lot more. Um, uh, sort of disposable income. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like a good time. Um, and, and I cite an economist in the book who points out that, you know, fertility generally falls in times of crisis or, or recession. Mm-hmm. Um, but that this may have been one of the only times he could think of where some groups actually increase their fertility in a time of crisis. Yeah. And, and going back to our previous caller, Jennifer, she sort of dives into one of your reasons that you list in yeah. the book. You organize the book so well, it's sort of talking about the different reasons in which women choose to make that decision to live a childless life. And I think she falls under the one that was like, well, because we've always made choices, right? Yeah. Um, we've, we've just always made choices and, and decided that uh, maybe that's not what we want to do. Um, you, you write women aren't having children uh, because you know, and it wasn't because they weren't using condoms, right? When we go back in history, uh, talk about some of that early contraception that you, you mentioned before, like before the late 18th century that allowed women the freedom to choose when they had kids. Sure. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of people ask me, you know, how could you possibly be writing a long history of not having children? Wasn't birth control invented in the 1950s, which which the pill, it, it was invented in the 1950s. But the answer is they were doing a lot of things. Um, you can go back to the ancient Romans and the ancient Greeks and, and the, the rabbis and the Talmud, and they talk about barrier methods. Some of them seem plausible and some of them seem less so. Um, everything from sort of strips of cotton to pieces of fruit inserted in front of the, the cervix before having sex. Um, there were also um, quite commonly in medieval Europe, in in the American colonies, people knew of, of herbs that you could take that would terminate a pregnancy in its early stages. So people, long before there was modern birth control technology, people had the ability to to limit births. Yeah. Well, let's jump back to the phone sure. lines. I think we've got two callers standing by. First, let's go to Karen in Old Town. Hey, Karen. Welcome to Reset. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Sure. And um, this is a great topic. And, Thank you. You know, I have, the, I have the perspective now of looking back, just like your previous caller. I'm 58 right now, and I have two adult children 
And I was the kid that grew up and I was the babysitter and I loved kids and I still love kids. Don't get me wrong. I have no regrets about having kids. But one thing that I don't know if this is addressed in the book or not, but one thing that um, really stood out to me in recent years is as the stakes get higher with kids that grow older, um, as an empath, I really feel their pain so much that I nobody prepared me for this. And luckily, my kids haven't been through anything traumatic or horrible. But, mm. um, you know, right now, my adult daughter is facing layoffs at work. And, you know, luckily, she hasn't been laid off yet. But, you know, meanwhile, my son is job hunting. And um, it's really tough. And mm. of course, yes, you look at the global issues, the current state of everything. <laughs> Yeah. And of course, I thought about it. Yeah, you know, Karen brings up such a wonderful point. As a parent, I can relate. You're sold this thing, this dream or this this ideology that like, you know, you're you're raising this child until they're 18 and then they go off and that you know, then it's then it's theirs, right? Their their lives are theirs to to run, but not always so. I mean, yes, that can happen, but as a parent, like your job never ends. It just never ends. Um and so I my heart broke for Karen there. Uh, I want to just squeeze Jennifer in before we take a pause. I believe uh, she's also a parent. Hey, Jennifer. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hello. Hey, what's your story? I really, I have a teenage daughter. I'm 53 years of age. My story is um, one of a lot of struggle. I I waited a long time to have my child. I put 100% of myself into it. And... um, just with the advent of all the social media, the electronics, the current climate of our political culture in this country and everything else, it's really impacted my daughter and it's made it really hard. She's had a lot of problems and I just, I struggle with it because I feel like certain, you know, when you're raising a child, it's a direct reflection of you or that's how I I felt. I'm kind of working through that because I realize there's so many factors that it, it, I'm, I'm trying my best, but it's just been extremely difficult, and especially with the pandemic and with all the things that have gone on. Yeah. And I wanted just to comment also on the social economic piece of it. I mean, before the pandemic, I was a middle class kind of person. Through the pandemic, everything was lost, and we went to ground zero, mm-hmm. and it is it has been a terrible struggle for us, and yeah. it has impacted my daughter significantly. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, Jennifer. Thank you for sharing. Any quick thoughts before we take a break? Sure. Peggy? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, one Two of, parents there with, with some you know, difficult stories. Absolutely. You know, one of the last pieces of the book sort of clicked into place for me when I realized that um, the reasons it is very difficult to be a parent in general and today in, in, in American society, in the middle of a pandemic, in, in all of the crises that those callers mentioned, are some of the same reasons that women give when they say they're not going to have children at all. And so to me, this suggests less of a divide and more of, you know, we're all in this together and we're all sort of doing our best to make lives. All right, Peggy, I want to jump to a reason that you list in the book that I I think is highly important. This is uh, women not having children simply because they can't, right? Uh, Maybe they're infertile or or physically they can't carry a fetus. Uh, You talk about how these women are somehow viewed, though, as incomplete, though they want kids, but they just simply aren't able to explain that a bit. 
Yeah, I, I really wanted to include a, a chapter on on people experiencing infertility in the book because I think they often get left out of conversations about not having children because um, you know they they didn't opt in. Um, you know, many of them wouldn't identify that way. Um, it was also the the most difficult chapter to write I, because I knew that it was the place that I could. I really was running the danger of, of hurting people. I mean. It, Studies show that people experiencing infertility, it's as um, stressful and, and causes as much, as much grief as a cancer diagnosis. Um, but also the, um, the, the history of, of treating infertility is, is fairly complicated. Um, so so I, I wanted to sort of make sure that they were included in, in a book about not having children, in particular because um, reproductive technologies like, like IVF, they exist. They are genuinely miraculous mm-hmm. that we can you know, create a human being on a lab table, but they're, they're, uh, the accessibility is, is complicated. They're very expensive. Um, the, the success rates vary widely, especially with older women. Um, so I think we have this idea that infertility is cured, but, but of course, for many women, that's not their experience at all. Even if they can access infertility treatment, it doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. Another reason you talk about it in the book is because we'll be on our own. That's mm-hmm. what you titled it. Now, we know, I know as a parent, it takes a village yes. to raise kids, right? Especially now. Um, that, is, that is the reason that you give in the book here. And, and there's an interesting tidbit that you talk about that surprised me where you said how in the 1600s, the number of children that a woman had, it correlated to how far she lived from her mother or her grandmother, why was that the case? Yeah, I loved this study. So so historians have looked at 16th century um, French colonists in Canada, and they looked at birth records, and they were basically tracking how many children a woman would have. And they found that, as you said, um, a woman who, who moved 200 miles from her mother, and, and I think that represents you know her family of origin, her community, she would have significantly fewer children than a woman who lived near her mother, mm-hmm. and her children were, were less likely to thrive. They were more likely to, to die of all kinds of things. Um, and to me, that just emphasizes how critically important it is to have a community of a support network around a parent um, that, you know, it, as you said, it takes a village to raise a child. Yeah. And I think we can see that in birth records going all the way back to the 16th century. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I can tell you just from firsthand experience. <laughs> The village I had. Thank you. Shout out to all of you uh, for sure. Let's jump back to the phones. Ben's been patiently waiting in Kenwood. Hey, Ben. Welcome to Reset. Uh, Greetings. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, The reason uh, that I will not bring a life into this world is, is because life to me is a very, very special, precious, sacred, beautiful, glorious, privileged gift. And I, I feel that the woman that I love does not make that nine-month commitment to dedicate a life into this world and futility. Now, the ultimate reason that I don't want to dedicate a life into this world is I, I just don't want to give them that, that sentence. Mm. And what that sentence is, as, as, as anyone will, who's been conceived in this world will receive, and that's that sentence of death. That's- yeah. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate your call. Also good to hear from a man yeah, on this topic, for absolutely. sure. You know, there's something you mentioned in, in, in the section of your book, Peggy, that talked about women aren't having children because we can't have it all, right? In that section, you talked about the, quote, motherhood penalty yeah. and the, the fatherhood bonus. Mm-hmm. What are those? Yeah, so economists have, have done studies of um, people with and without children, and they find that um, for for men, oftentimes, 
their their lifetime earning potential increases if they have children. You know, we can theorize because they seem responsible, mm-hmm. or or they you know they they get credit for being family men. Um, but for women, having children. Um, reduces someone's lifetime earning potential fairly significantly. Um, And one of the most striking statistics I found was that um, in one study from, I believe it was Sweden, maybe Denmark, one of the Scandinavian countries, they found that the entire difference between men and women's earnings could be explained by having children. Mm. That basically a woman who never had children had no income difference to, to the men around her, but that mothers took a lifetime hit. Wow, that's that's yeah. that's interesting. Uh, you know, working mothers today. I mean, we've all heard some form of this. You can have it all, right? You, you can have the husband, you can have the kids, and the career. Um, but I hear conversations, especially uh, Michelle Obama comes to mind. She's been so vocal about this lately, talking about you know it's not possible to have it all. I mean, at least not all at once, <laughs> as people make it sound. But you write, Peggy, that that idea, it's still fetishized by so many people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I love the Michelle Obama quote because because it's it's so comforting. She's right? been loud and proud yeah. saying that. <laughs> yeah, it's so comforting to hear you don't have to do it all. You know, um, I, I do think that for, for women, the the expectation that, yes, you can you can have children and you can have a career um, creates this situation. I mean, not to say that you can't, but but just that you are one person with with 24 hours in the day and one life to live. Um, and so none of us could possibly do everything. Um, and, and so so I really appreciated Obama's um, sentiment that that, in fact, the expectation that you should be able to have it all is is a incredible pressure that is yeah. placed on women. Let's jump back to the phone lines. We've got Kate all the way from Milwaukee. Yeah. Hey, Kate. Welcome to Reset. Guys, how are you? Doing well. What are your thoughts? I'm I'm eager to hear. Yeah, absolutely. So I really the thing that really kind of gets me going about this conversation, I'm 35, I don't have children, and I'm married, and I've been married for 12 years. Um, and a lot of people say that okay, it's irresponsible to not have children. But to me, I view it as something that's very responsible because it's something that I would never take lightly. It is a huge, huge, huge commitment. And when we're talking about, you know, the things that are going on in our life, we're looking at all of these things and these reasons why we can't have kids. If we can't afford it, our mental health, there are other things that are going on in life. People say you're never going to be totally ready. And this idea that you automatically are very responsible when you have children is just not true. We are really trying to think things through before we make this life-altering decision if it's our choice. Yes, Katie, thank you so much for, for sharing that. I agree because... I'm a parent, but I am always struck by comments that people make when someone in the room, man or woman, mentions that they don't want kids. Um, You know, do you ever think that we will get beyond this so-called divide, Peggy, that we talked about earlier? I mean, I I hope so. Um, I really I always cringe at that moment when people, you know, it's like the record scratch. How dare you say you don't want children? Right. Yeah, I mean, it remains a hard it remains a hard thing to say, right. and I think as as Kate was pointing out, it remains one of the the primary markers of sort of entering adulthood. Certainly for women, mm-hmm. that if you if you haven't done it, you are you are not a not an adult. Um, but I think um, something that Kate gestured towards was was that very often the choice or or the decision not to have children is done in in great recognition of how much responsibility. It, it requires sort of the sacred burden of, of taking on caring for another human being um, that sometimes people who, you know, don't have children of their own are, are actually 
giving more weight to, to the, the kind of responsibility it requires. Oh, for sure. And you even talk about how they might even be happier. <laughs> yes. The happiness gap. Yes. Um, so the, the, the happiness gap was fascinating because um, according to there's, – there's a survey done every year of, of people's sense of well-being. Um, and, and according to that – in the United States, there is a, a happiness gap between parents and non-parents. That is, um, people without children are happier than parents by about 12%. Um, this is not because of the children themselves. <laughs> um, it is because of the conditions under which American parents parent. Um, the same survey shows that in other countries where there's a lot more support for parents, that parents are actually happier than non-parents by something like 8%. Mm-hmm. So, so this, is, this is sort of in recognition of how difficult it is to parent in the society that we've created. Um, but of course, there are, there are also people who, you know, have prioritized other things and, and have, have made deliberate choices about how to spend their time. And, and that can create happiness as well. Absolutely. Let's hear from Krista in Oak Park. She wants to join the conversation. Sure. Hey, Krista. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Sure. What so are your thoughts? I find myself of like both minds. So I, I do think people should have less children, you know, or, uh, no children. I really admire women that choose not to have children because I think it it represents almost in an awe-inspiring way that they're enjoying their life, that they're proud of their life, that they have other things that they're focusing on. And I find that astonishing. And at the same time, as like a member of the planet, I really have trouble understanding what is the point of organic life without sort of con- passing on your genetic heritage to the next generation. Yeah. And so while I don't want everybody to have kids for the love of all things, I don't want you all to have kids. I also, why are we even here? Mm. So I don't know how to feel about it. Yeah. <laughs> you've gotten, you've given us a lot to think about, Krista. That's those are such good points. Uh, I do want to hear from Rachel in Avondale as well. Hey, Rachel. Hi. So for us, um, for me and my husband, we were married in our mid-20s, and we always wanted to have children and planned to put it off a few years, but we put it off a lot longer than we hoped, basically because we didn't have the health care coverage uh, that we that would allow me to have maternity care. Um, I'm 44 now, so we were married 20 years ago. And at that time, maternity coverage wasn't mandated. So it would have been hundreds and hundreds of dollars of every month just on the possibility that I might get pregnant. And, um, and then later, once we started trying to conceive, I had a series of miscarriages. So it took us a long time to find out and to get a plan, even then, this was just a few years ago, that would cover the testing and the treatment yeah. that would allow us to even find out what was going on. And if we had had health care coverage early in our marriage, we would have understood what we were bringing to the table. And yeah. it would have prevented a lot of trauma and dangerous. My last miscarriage sent, sent me to the hospital. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so I'm I, so sorry, I, Rachel. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for, for calling it and sharing that story. We're just about out of time, but I want to give you the final word here, Peggy. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, Rachel's Rachel's call makes me think of, um, you know, on the one hand, it is, or I guess the last two callers, on the one hand, I think there is some cause for celebration in the idea that, you know, women have lots of different choices about the way they want to live their lives, and they're sort of increasingly choosing different options. Yeah. But on the other hand, um, 
One of the most striking statistics in the book is that, as you said, American women are having 1.6, 1.7 an average um, kids children, per lifetime. Kids per lifetime. But when surveys ask them how many they want to have, they say three. And so there is a large gap between the number of children that women in America want and mm-hmm. the number that they're having. See, that's your next book. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the next <laughs> that's book. That's the sequel. But, but it seems to me that, you know, there's, there's a way to sort of celebrate people choosing different kinds of lives, but also to recognize that we've created a society that makes not having children, um, you know, more appealing. Yeah. We'll leave it there. Peggy O'Donnell Heffington is a history professor at UChicago and author of this great new book, Without Children, The Long History of Not Being a Mother. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Reset was produced by Brenda Ruiz, and it was edited by Andrew Merriweather and Meha Ahmed. Hear more great interviews with fascinating authors and scholars by subscribing to our podcast. And when you do, be sure to do us a favor and leave a rating and review. That really helps more listeners find our show. That's all for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.